0: Hi, this is Everett Piper, and I want to thank all of you who have been so loyal in listening to the rebellion over the course of the last year and even posting it out there in your social media and encouraging other people to do the same. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. Well, it's the week between Christmas and New Year, and I've decided I'm going to take a bit of a break. So rather than just letting the airways go cold, we decided that we'd go back and pull what we consider some of the most popular Rebellion podcasts over the course of the last year. So this week, that's what we're going to be featuring. Again, thank you so much for your loyalty. Thank you so much for standing with us. Thank you for defending the truth and caring enough to do so. And as we enter into this last week of 2021, I want to say once again, Merry Christmas, Long Live the True King, and have a happy and glorious New Year. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until, in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps to the rescue and the liberation in times of universal deceit truth is the only rebellion left on today's show i'm going to step away from the daily news step away from all of the stuff, all of the nonsense, all of the politics, and all of the bickering. Today I'm going to focus on C.S. Lewis and one of his best books, in my view, one of my favorite books, and that's C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's rebellion. I'm going to get away from the news for the day. Or at least any news that you're aware of. I guess the only news I'm going to share with you is that a couple days ago, I went down to Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, to watch a dramatic performance of C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. That's one more time, C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. If you have not read this book, I strongly encourage you to do so. It's a very short read. It's less than 200 pages. Much of Lewis's writing is. He doesn't get really verbose. He doesn't prattle on for three or 400 pages in his writing, or at least in his popular writing. I'm going to explain to you who C.S. Lewis is if you don't know. If you do, knew, do know Lewis, I'll remind you of some things that you may have forgotten. And then I'm going to focus most of my attention on his message, what he's telling us, what the climax is, of this book, The Great Divorce, which is a fictitious telling of a bus ride, a bus ride from hell to heaven. Several passengers get on this bus. They go to the gates of heaven, and all of them, with the exception of one, decide that they'd rather go back to hell than enter into heaven. One more time. All of these passengers that have the opportunity to leave hell and enter into the eternity of heaven. All of these passengers, with the exception of one character, decide they'd rather go back to hell. Remember that if you would like to subscribe to The Rebellion, I strongly encourage you to do so. We need your financial support. It takes time to provide this show on a daily basis. And your subscription... Whether it be $5, $10, $20 or more per month Helps keep the light bill on and give me the time and the energy And the incentive, the motivation to provide the rebellion So go to patreon.com backslash D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R One more time, that's patreon.com backslash Dr. Everett Piper, D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. And please support The Rebellion by sus- by subscribing there. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion, and I will be right back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to The Rebellion. One of the reasons I'm stepping away from the news for a day or so is I think uh, I spend more time Time on it than I should, and I'm going to challenge all of you listening right now. You probably do too. This is uh, this is a day when we can get our news on a minute-by-minute basis, and a lot of us do. We have our smartphones. We're constantly checking Facebook or Twitter or our newsfeed, and therefore we know what's going on in the world around us on almost on a real-time basis. And I think that the attention that we give that, I'm not calling it evil. I'm not calling it sinful. But it can be. It can be both of those things if it becomes our master. Uh, Jesus told us that you can't worship God and money at the same time. Okay, that money can become your God. He warned us of the dangers of that. Well, I think that principle applies to the way we consume our information today. That if we allow it to dominate our lives, like some of us allow money to dominate our lives, then the media, the news, your smartphone, can become your God. Anything that dominates you, anything that controls you, anything that holds all importance for you, Anything that becomes your summum bonum, your highest good, Latin highest good. Anything that is elevated above all else is your God. It's idolatry. So that's one of the reasons I'm going to discipline myself and confess that, quite frankly, because... I, un- I need to have some better thoughts in my head than what's going on in Washington, D.C. or Oklahoma City or this political race or that. I worship a sovereign God, an omnipotent God, an omnipresent God, an omniscient God, a God who knows all, sees all, understands all, a God who has the power to control all, for the ultimate good of his purpose. Any God that's less than that is not a God worth worshiping. And therefore, everything that's going on in our lives right now is within the box of his sovereign omniscience. We're promised that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. All things work together for the good. In other words, there's nothing that's happening politically militarily, economically, in our lives right now, that will not work together for the good of those who have confessed their sins to Jesus Christ as their Lord. He redeems all the junk in life for his ultimate purpose. We are told that in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, where after his brothers literally sell him into slavery, they, they wanted to kill him. And had it not been for the in, in, uh, intervention of one of the brothers, that he, that he probably would have been murdered. But instead of doing that, oh, well, let's just sell him into slavery, literal slavery. I'm not talking metaphorical slavery. They sold him to a slave caravan. The slave caravan takes Joseph to Egypt, and you know the rest of the story. He's raised in Egypt. He rises through the ranks of Pharaoh's court. He ultimately ultimately becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. There's a drought. His brothers don't have any food back home, so they travel to Egypt for the purpose of buying some grain and taking him back home. And what happened? Joseph is the man who actually meets with them to finalize the purchase of this grain, and they don't know who he is. Long and short of the story, they finally figure it out. They finally understand who Joseph is. He reveals himself to them. They're scared to death because they think the second most powerful man in Egypt can do anything that he wants with them. And that's true. He could throw them in prison. He could, do, he could sell them into slavery. Uh, presumably, he might have the power even to convict them of a crime uh, that would be worthy of the death penalty. But what does Joseph tell them? He says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. This is a Piper paraphrase, by the way. Don't worry about it. What you intended for evil, God redeemed for good. It's God redeemed all of this mess that you created in my life. God redeemed it. What you intended for evil, God redeemed for good. One more time. What others intended for evil, God redeemed for good in all of that mess. Same thing that The Apostle Paul, St. Paul, is telling you in the New Testament, all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord. So, what did I learn or what did I get reminded of when I went down to this performance of the great divorce in Tulsa? Well, let me share with you a little bit of the context of the great divorce. Again, it's a a fiction. It's a tale that C.S. Lewis is telling. It's a tale of a bus ride. A bus pulls up in hell or at least at the gates of hell. And some people are invited to get on the bus and a few choose to do so. There's several characters on the bus. There's a mother who's lost her child early in life. There's an intellectual, an academic who also doubles as a priest, a pastor, a curate. So there's a smart guy who thinks he knows everything. There's a woman who's in perpetual grieving and angry and mourning the loss of her beloved son. There's another woman who Lewis calls a perpetual grumble. She's not grumbling. That's not what she's doing any longer. She's actually a grumbler. And that grumbler, the identity, she is what she Has been thinking. She becomes the very thing that she does. And that's a very important lesson for all of us to learn. If you constantly focus on complaining, you're not complaining anymore. You're a complainer. You are a walking complaint. If you're constantly worrying, looking at the things around you and fretting and fussing and you can't get your mind off of it, you're not worrying any longer. You're a worrier. You are a walking worry. And Lewis paints the picture of one of the characters that decided to get on the bus as being a a grumbler, but she's not a grumbler any longer. He actually calls her a grumble because that's all she is. She has no identity other than that. Now, isn't that a message for all of us? Are we becoming the very thing that we choose to do all the time? It's You know, I've said over and over again that your identity is not the sum total of your inclinations, that you are more than what you're inclined to do. And I've said that in reference to a critique, and you know where I'm going with this. I've said it to you a hundred times. It's a critique of the homosexual LGBTQIA agenda, homosexual trans identity claims, that your identity is only the sum total of what you're inclined to do. Your passions, your proclivities, your habits. Well, I stand by that. Our identity is more than what you're inclined to do. But if you give yourself over to those inclinations on a daily basis, you start defining yourself, dumbing yourself down, dumbing down the definition of who you are to nothing but that inclination. That's the consequence of sin. So I guess in a way you could challenge me and say, well, they are trans they are bi they are homosexual you could challenge me and say that and i would say well you've got a point but they're only they are only that thing because they chose they chose to imbibe the inclination to the extreme where it took over their lives just like when you or i choose to imbibe an inclination to to hate someone else to not forgive someone else, to malign someone else, to think selfishly. We give ourselves over to that inclination, and the inclination was not the definition of who we are at the front end of the process, but it becomes who we are at the tail end of the process. You become the very thing that you choose to think about all the time. That's the lesson of the grumbler. In C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. So what's the point? The point of the Great Divorce is that all of these people go on the bus to the gates of heaven and they meet an angel, a couple different angels there at the gates of heaven that describe to them what heaven is like. Basically, the message is this. Give away your selfishness. Confess your self-focus, your self-infatuation. Confess that and you're welcome to enter the gates of heaven. The challenge is this. Would you rather give up all of that stuff, all of that anger, all of that lack of forgiveness, all of that perpetual fixation on the fact that your son was taken from you too early in life and that you should have died before him, but no, he died young, and it's oh, so unfair. Are you willing to give up your intellectual prowess and in the fact that you've got X, Y, and Z degrees and that you know more than everything, everyone else about everything in the world? Can you give up that intellectual arrogance, that Pathology of the intellect, the sickness of the mind, the reprobate mind. Can you do that? If you're just willing to give these things up, says the angel, one after another, to these various different characters, you're welcome to enter the gates of heaven. But every one of these characters in The Great Divorce decides, no, 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 I would rather go back into hell and be the master of my own misery there than be the servant of the eternal God. I would rather hang on to my idols, hang on to my, my sins. Well, and I'm not talking just sexual sins, the big ones. I'm not talking about the big sins. I'm talking about every sin, because every sin is big, and C.S. Lewis points that out. Even the love of your own children can be a sin if you don't realize that that love can be corrupted. And become your idol. Because you're not loving God any longer. You're loving something else. And Lewis challenges us to recognize that that's not even true love. It's the corruption of love. In that context, I'm going to read to you a couple passages out of The Great Divorce. Now again, keep in mind the context is all of these travelers on the bus are being confronted by an angel that knows their past. Usually the angel is somebody who's deceased, who's gone on before them, somebody that uh, these people knew in their individual lives. So one angel, for example, is a guy who was a murderer on earth, but he confessed his sin of murder. He gave that up. And as the result, he's now in heaven. And the person he's talking to, the person from hell that might want to consider doing the same thing, confessing her sins, is stunned to see this guy, this angel, in heaven. And she's saying, what are you doing here? That, that's the nature of the book. The angels are those that know the story, the earthly story of these various different travelers' lives. And they're talking to the travelers in a very humble and repentant fashion, sharing with them, the reason I'm here is I gave all that stuff up, I confessed my sins. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. For the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, it's that story, person by person, character by character. Just embrace that, accept that. It's not that complicated. Just give up yourself. Well, one of the angels is talking to the woman who's in a perpetual mourning state, which is she thought was love, but love had been degraded to not selflessness, but selfishness because she was angry. She was offended. She couldn't believe that her son had been taken from him. Frankly, she wanted her son back so badly, back from the grave, back from death, so badly that when the angel said, well, your son's here in heaven, but if we were to give him to you, you would have to take him back to hell with you because you apparently don't want to confess this idolatry, this, this uh, corrupted love in your heart. You don't want to confess it and stay here in heaven and be with your son. You want, to, you want me to go find him here in heaven and give him to you so that you can take him back to hell, so that he can live there in misery with you for eternity? And the woman actually says yes. That's how much she loves her son. Think about that. Now this angel says, to her that um, she's mistaken. She's mistaken because the beauty of love, she now mistakes for the real thing. And he says this, this is a great quote, listen to it. Brass is mistaken for gold more easily than is clay. And if it finally refuses conversion, its corruption will be worse than the corruption of what you call the lower passions, It's a stronger angel, and therefore when it falls, it's a fiercer devil. Do you get that point here? I mean, brass is mistaken for gold more easily than is clay. It's the brassy stuff, the shiny stuff, the stuff that looks kind of like gold. You know, brass, when it's polished, kind of looks a little bit like gold. Brass is mistaken for gold more easily than is clay, than is the mud, the dirt, the bad stuff of life. So the love of brass, the brassiness, the shininess, the the stability of love, earthly love, is mistaken for the gold, the purity, the perfection of Christ-like love more easily than is clay. But its corruption will be worse than the corruption of the lower passions, the lower emotions, the lower things that we hold in life. Brass is a stronger angel, and therefore, when it falls, when, it's, when it becomes your god, when that brass, that shiny stuff, like earthly love, the love you have your, for, for your children, when it falls, it becomes a fiercer devil than even your base instincts and your passions. That, that, that's a lesson that we all ought to take home. Now, there's another character. I'm going to spend the rest of the show on this. Remember I told you that the bus ride from hell to heaven resulted in every one of those passengers that, okay, I'm going to leave hell for a bit. I'd like to get on this bus and travel up to that other place that they talk about. See if it's any better than here. That's the nature of the book. And all of these characters get on the bus and one by one they meet their... They meet their respective angels at the gates of heaven. And one by one, all of them say, No, I'm not going to give up my love for my son. You give my son to me. You give him back to me so I can take him with me back to hell. I don't want to stay here. That's how bad it is. The, the academic the academic says, Oh, but I know. I know because I have these degrees. I understand the existence, the discussion. I understand Everything. About the human personality Everything about economics Everything about politics Everything about even heaven and hell I've, I've discussed and written about these things I don't want to give up that knowledge That understanding And stay here in heaven And admit that, well, maybe I was wrong No, I'd rather go back to hell And be the smart guy Among all of the folks down there They look up to me they want to hear about my wisdom. Well, there's one character. He approaches his angel, and the angel notices that the, this, this particular guy has something on his shoulder. And what he has on his shoulder is a red lizard. And the lizard is yapping at him, talking to him, pestering him. And the guy keeps saying, you know, be quiet, be quiet. The angel's coming. You know, you control yourself. Stop it. Stop it. I, I don't want you to be wiggling and writhing on my shoulder. And please stop. You're pestering me. Please stop talking. It embarrasses me. Stop. The angel approaches this man and says, Do you want me to kill it? Referring to the lizard on his shoulder. And the guy says, No, no, I can control him. He'll calm down. He'll be quiet. The angel says again, No, no, you don't understand. Do you want me to kill it? The angel gets closer. The man gets nervous. The blizzard is getting more agitated, more more aggressive. And the man responds to the angel, no, 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 I don't want you to kill it. Not now, maybe later, maybe later we can get rid of it. But right now, just let me control it. Let me control him. Everything will be okay. The angel gets closer to the man. Do you want me to kill it? The man, in incredible aggravation, says, no, no, please don't. He's he's sinking his claws into my shoulder right now. Please, please stop. The angel gets very close and says, Do you want me to kill it? And the man finally responds and says, Fine, fine. They're screaming and there's a great conflict that goes on. The lizard knows what's coming. The man is in pain as the angel grabs the lizard and takes it off the man's shoulders. The man throws himself to the ground in pain, while the angel actually throws the lizard down, crushes the lizard, and kills it on the ground. So what's the moral of that story? The moral of that story is this. What's the lizard? The lizard represents your sin. The lizard represents your willingness to allow Christ to destroy that sin. Your willingness to let him kill it. You can't kill it yourself. I can't kill it myself. The only way we can get that lizard off our shoulder, that thing that keeps talking to us all the time, telling us to be angry, telling us to be vindictive, that lizard of self-righteousness, that lizard of academic superiority, intellectual capacity, that lizard of uh, earthly love for your children that you elevate about it, uh, above any love for God, so, so loving that you want to control your own children, and if somebody takes that control away from you, you are resentful and angry. That lizard can only be destroyed by Christ himself. Are you willing to let him kill it? Now, remember, every character in this book goes back to hell, except one I said. Well, guess who is the one that stays in heaven? It's this man who screamed and argued and fell to the ground in pain. It's, there's great conflict. This is the only character in the book that stays in heaven. Now, the interesting thing is the lizard, the sin. His passions, his proclivities, his inclinations. The thing that was constantly trying to control him, and in many ways was controlling him. He thought he could control the lizard and keep it quiet and manage it, but he couldn't. He finally admitted that. The angel killed the lizard. But what happened to it? Well, if you read the rest of the book, the lizard is laying on the ground. It's writhing and it's changing. It didn't. Well, the lizard's dead, but there's, still, there's something else there. Something growing out of it. And what grows out of the lizard is a grand and glorious horse. A stallion. A golden stallion rises up. The most magnificent horse you've ever seen. Just think of the most beautiful horse you've seen in the pasture. and This one is better. And it's golden in color. The lizard morphs transforms into this grand and glorious horse, the stallion, and the man who has given it up, given that lizard up, allowed the angel to kill it, reclaims the beauty of that very thing that was controlling him. No, our basis instincts, even those things can be redeemed and can be reclaimed, can be transformed. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You're transformed. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. And that new thing, that transformed thing is the thing that this man gets on and rides into the very gates of heaven. That's the moral of today's story. Give up your base instincts, your base passions, let Christ kill them, and you'll be stunned. in the transformation of those things Into something grand and glorious Brass is more easily mistaken for gold than is clay But if you allow Christ to apply heat To those base instincts, those metals in your life They can be transformed into gold And it's that confession and that's giving up of self That allows you to ride into the gates of heaven I'm Dr. Everett Piper and this is The Rebellion